Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we've got Andrew Mason. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Daniel Pritchett. Daniel, do you want to say hello? Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I thought for sure we'd had you on the show before, but I couldn't find the episode. So I'm sorry, I can't refer back to it. But uh, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, This is definitely my first time. It's uh, basically a bucket list thing for me. I've been listening to this show for years. I think I first started doing Ruby in 2012. Oh, nice. remember exactly how old the show is, but I feel like I was listening to it and being really into it way back then. Yeah, the show has been around since 2011, so it was there definitely there if you started in 2012. Yeah. So uh, lately, I've been uh, working on wrapping up and publishing a book that I built on, or wrote the book, on building chatbots in Ruby using a framework called Lita. It's been a really exciting trip for me. And aside from that, like I said, I started working with Rails back in 2012, did a few years of uh contract app development, mostly full stack stuff. I transitioned from there to more of a focus on backend, build and deploy, and cloud server type stuff. So for the last year at work, I've been doing infrastructure for a startup called Gremlin, and it's pretty fun. Nice. Yeah, that sounds awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what does Gremlin do? I I didn't have a chance to actually check them out. So Gremlin's tagline is break things on purpose. We have a SaaS app and you'll log into gremlin.com and you will run attacks where Gremlin reaches out to servers that you're running in your production infrastructure or staging infrastructure. And they will take down various processes or reboot the server or fill up your disk or hog your RAM or hog one one or more of your CPU cores. And so the whole idea there is that you can proactively figure out where the weak spots are on your architecture by running a series of experiments to see what can go wrong. So you'll hopefully be better prepared for those things when you have a real production incident, or maybe even avoid the incident by better identifying your weak spots and showing them up. Nice. That's cool. Now I want to go play with it. <laughs> break me, break me. So you've been working mostly on infrastructure stuff there. We brought you on to talk about chatbots. and. You've written a whole book on it, which is exciting. This is an area I want to get into for devchat.tv, right? Where we have a chat and we have chatbots where people can, you know, get information on the shows and interact with, with uh, the systems that we have and things like that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to dive into this. When you say chatbot, though, are we talking, I mean, how do you define that? Is it like Slack bots or is it more along the lines of like Messenger or... Uh, Discord or, you know, one-on-one interaction? Or is it, you know, something that sits in the channel and tells Chuck Norris jokes? I mean, what what are we looking at here? There's a lot of different things that people recognize as chatbots. The ones you mentioned, like Messenger bots, 
a lot of businesses will run those sort of as a first line help desk sort of thing. You reach in, you ask it questions, it looks in its knowledge base and tries to direct you to the next answer. So you'll have sort of a decision tree there. That's not what my book is about, but it, there's definitely pointers I can give you if you're interested in doing one of those. This book is more of a classic Hubot style, single command, single response. Okay. So it could be listening to the channel, telling jokes. It could be you asking the bot, hey, go find local meetups for Ruby. Like that was one of the first chatbot skills I put together years ago was just hitting the meetup API to tell the room when the next uh, Ruby meetup was. And so, yeah, the book's got about a dozen or so different chatbot skills, which each one is like a single command that you'll ask it to do a certain thing and it'll go do it and then spit the response back out in your chat room or your Slack room. So a lot more like a Slack bot. That makes sense. Yeah, we have a Discord set up for devchat.tv and we do have some general channels as well as some show-specific channels. And so it'd be kind of fun to just set, set one up in there, set one up in each of those channels. And then, yeah, you know, when does the next episode come out? Do we know what it is? Just things like that. Yeah, that is definitely the sort of thing you could do with Lita. I find a Lita bot, it's, if you've used Ubot, it's really a very similar architecture, but it's in Ruby. Actually, when I started writing the book, I initially was thinking about using Hubot because my primary chatbot experience was with Hubot. But then I realized pretty quickly that it was going to take me forever to finish because I wasn't good enough at JavaScript to write code that I was willing to put in a book that included tests and explanations. So switching to Ruby helped me finish it before the end of time. Right. And Hubot's written for Node.js, if I remember right. Yeah. GitHub created it in Node in about 2012, 2014. And originally, a lot of the implementation of the individual skills, like, say, find meetups, were done with CoffeeScript. It's been able to also support plain JavaScript for a long time, maybe forever. But that was kind of fun for me getting started writing these things in CoffeeScript because it's got such a a sparse look and feel on the page. So I saw here and I heard, I think you were on another podcast I listened to, but you created a community chatbot and you called it Elvis. Can you... Tell us what that was and also why you chose that name. Yeah, sure. Uh, Several years ago when I was living in Memphis, I lived there for about 15 years and I had participated or helped start the local Ruby user group, had several local Rubyists who were hanging out with each other in the same central IRC room, Memtech IRC on Freenode. And I got into playing with Hubot. Don't remember what got me started, but one day I got a wild hair and decided to spin up a Hubot to run in the channel. And uh, that was just as simple as using, I guess, NPM to spin up a new Hubot. I'm sure there's some sort of generator that creates the bot. And then you type in your uh, IRC username and password in a config file, and you just run the process and it connects, right? So from the very first day, I really wanted it to be a shared experience, not just my personal bot that other people had to or got to interact with, but rather a community bot that we all got to contribute to. So in order to make that happen, I immediately committed my instance of the bot to a GitHub repo and made it public and then uh, put that out on a continuous integration and delivery setup with a service called Worker, which works a lot like CircleCI or CodeShip. And from there, I added a a simple smoke test. So right there in the first day, we sort of closed the loop where anybody could make a proposed change on GitHub, like click edit on the web interface and open up the edit this CoffeeScript file dialog type in some new code, hit submit, then it creates a PR for that person and automatically it would build. And if it passed, then we'd merge it and it would go on to be working in the chatbot. So that way anybody could get their 
new ideas live on the bot in the chat room within a few minutes. And it was super fun. The first day I had two other people contributing to it, which was validation of the, the open build and deploy method. And I think the second or third day, a friend from the Ruby user group suggested we name it Elvis because there's a whole lot of Elvis history in Memphis with Sun Studios and uh, the Presley childhood home a few hours away in Mississippi. And that name really resonated with people. And we got, I think, about a dozen contributors in the first couple of years. It was a lot of fun. Nice. That's just amazing. So one other thing that I have a question about is just hosting the chatbots, right? Because you send a request, it's got to go somewhere, right? So do you just host it on a server? Is it something you can put up on Heroku and it just has you know, some kind of hook or endpoint that gets hit? Or... Are you using like microservices and serverless or what's the approach here? It is something of a Ruby monolith, but not a particularly big one. So if you know how to host Sinatra or Rails somewhere, then you're perfectly capable of doing the same with Lita. I usually started by pushing them to Heroku. So you'll spin up your Heroku proc file, which starts a single process, that Lita process, bundle exec Lita spins up one process which connects to a Redis server. You do have to have access to a local Redis server, but that's super easy with Heroku. I'm going to plug our uh, sponsor on that one. We have Redis Green as a sponsor, and they do a great job on that. Anyway, keep going. Very cool. Yeah, so use your Redis host. You've got your one leader process running. As soon as it spins up, it will reach out to your chat service. It has pluggable adapters for Slack or IRC or various other things, probably one for Discord. So... It'll reach out and connect to Discord and it will just listen in your channel. And whenever your channel has a message come in, the bot will receive that and then process it and respond. There's also a rack middleware built in to where you can make web requests directly to your Lita server, which provides a whole extra dimension of interaction if you want to automate things or just see what's going on. Nice. So what are some of the skills that people can pull together for a chat bot? Good question. I'm going to dig out the table of contents for the book here because I find that I forget if I don't look them up. So the very first one I put in the book was uh, one I called Lita Doubler. Every Lita skill by default is uh, created as its own standalone Ruby gem. So there's a good bit of boilerplate. You want to generate or create a skill or a handler, they're called. And then you fill in, say, one file with a few lines of code. When you hear this, then respond with that, right? So the first one, Doubler, is just someone says Lita double two, and then the route will parse out the number two as the method, the parameter and feed it to the method. And then it will return two plus two equals four in the chat room. So that's the core of a simple skill. And then on to more complicated ones in the book. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, parsing a Tumblr blog. I've got a friend named Brad Montgomery from Memphis, who's a very healthy eater and serious runner and biker or cyclist, I guess. He publishes his uh, healthy meals on Instagram. He's been doing so for ages and then has those automatically ported to Tumblr. So one of the early skills in the book is go find, you say, Lita, what's Brad eating? And Lita goes and pulls down the front page of Brad's Tumblr, parses out the first post, grabs the caption, grabs the image, and then spits it out in the chat room with a link. So that's a simple one, like parse the web page, spit out the results. That might work for what you mentioned as far as uh, dev chat scheduling in your Discord. I mentioned the Meetup Finder. That one actually built a standalone web service as sort of a proxy because the, the Meetup API is, well, we were kind of using Meetup in ways it wasn't really intended. So 
but basically you just make an API request to say Lita meetup Ruby, and then it will ping some API, ask it to give you a JSON payload of upcoming meetups and then parse it and spit that back out in the channel. Others in the book, and one of the more popular ones for public fun channels is uh, connecting to the image flip API to generate image macros or memes. So like if you want to show a picture of a cat saying something silly, I'm trying to think of a good example in that chapter. So one of the ones we did was the ancient aliens guy, the guy on the history channel who's got big hair and he's holding his hands up by his face and he says aliens. So you could say Lita aliens chatbots and it would spit out a URL for a JPEG of that guy holding his hands up with the word chatbots in the bottom of the screen. That one turns out to be super fun and popular in a public channel. Beyond that, there's some uh, bridges into more real world stuff, uh, Internet of Things, I guess you'd call it. There's two companion skills to connect to Alexa. Alexa has a Amazon Echo, I guess, has a feature called the news feed. So you'd say, Alexa, what's in the news? Or tell me the news from this source. And basically the way that, the way the, the news feed skills work on Alexa is Alexa just goes and finds an RSS feed and reads the information to you. So I thought it'd be fun to build one skill that exposes an RSS feed at a public URL so that when you ask your local Alexa, hey, what's in the news for, I don't know, my local chat room, it could go read that feed. And then I made a companion skill where people in the chat room could type things out to be added to that feed. So you could say, Lita, tell Alexa, breakfast is tomorrow at seven. And then the next time somebody asks what's in the news, that'll be on their list. Beyond that, I worked with uh, programmable light bulbs. The Philips Hue light series is pretty popular. You can have these lights that you control from an API that will change colors, like be blue, green, flashing, that sort of thing. Found out that connecting to that from Ruby wasn't super hard. So that made it pretty easy to build a little wrapper to say, Lita, make my Hue bulb by the front door turn green. And then that makes that into an API call and ships it off. And sure enough, the bulb changes color. Do you have to have a machine in your house, though, to do that? So, you uh, Yeah, I mean, Alexa. so with the Alexa chapter, thankfully, Amazon or somebody has a public Alexa emulator that you can run on a website. Uh-huh. So that you can build it and test it without having to go out and buy a whole suite of Alexa stuff. But for the Hue lights, the whole Hue system beyond the bulbs, they expect you to have a, a bridge, like a little white box that plugs into right. your Ethernet that connects to them. So I don't know that you'd have much fun playing with that if you didn't have access to the, the lights. So that has an API somewhere so you can just hit it? And... Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the core of the, the book and just my method for doing chatbot stuff in general is figuring out how to use chat as an arbitrary input to anything I can figure out how to automate or control with the computer and also an arbitrary output to other sources of information collection. So in the past, I've had a dictation where you could say, talk to Siri or Alexa or whatever service that listens to what you're saying and then sends it off to a remote API and parses it into plain text words. There's no reason you couldn't then send that back to a chat room. And yeah, so it's all about just the creativity of playing Dr. Frankenstein, trying to figure out what kinds of weird stuff do you think you might be able to make a computer do and then figure out how to wrap it up in Ruby and then further bring that into your chat group. I am so tempted. I, I could go down the rabbit hole on this forever because, uh, I mean, we have some processes at devchat.tv that, you know, w- we've got somewhat automated either through Zapier or, you know, we're making some serious strides now on our podcasting so- software as a service. And I would love to just have a chat bot that you can just put in there and say, okay, publish this episode or, 
just, you know, type the details into the chat for it or, you know, add this company to our list of potential sponsors or mm-hmm. things like that. And then just have it, you know, go hit the API for HubSpot, which is our CRM or, you know, go hit the CMS or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing and just the possibilities are kind of exciting there. Yeah. And all those things I think are usually collectively referred to as chat ops. And I've been doing a lot more of that in the last year because I finally figured out a, a good reason to spin up a leaderbot at work. In years past, we had leaderbots at work that were more fun, like a soundboard. You could, if leader overheard you saying a specific thing, it might play a specific noise. Like once we were, we launched a small project product that was getting sales every so often, but rarely enough that it was an exciting event every time a new sale came through. So we wired up that to post to the chat room with a, an emoji of a dollar sign or a cash register or something. And that was its own process. And then Lita was just listening. If you ever saw that, it would reach out to another server that uh, was connected to our office Sonos and tell the Sonos to play a cash register MP3. So once you get started down that rabbit hole, you can build lots of uh, fun stuff and it's really easy to get it moving. And sometimes it can be pretty brittle. Like I never really liked the Sonos connection. I had planned to put that in the book, but it was just too weird for me to feel confident that readers of the book could pull it off with the code I'd written. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to get a copy of this book and dig through it. Andrew, what kinds of things would you do with something like this? Yeah, I've been thinking about this because when I think of kind of like the fun sort of stuff that we've been sort of mentioning, I how do I put this delicately? I see the potential for people to abuse it in not in like an abusive way, but in like a, okay, I'm trying to work and someone's like shooting off sounds every 10 seconds. Yes. Um, I definitely think this would be cool for... You said yes real fast on that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like there's been some experience there. (laughs) Yeah, I've uh, definitely worn out my welcome in more than one chat room by this sort of thing. It's kind of like a sorcerer's apprentice problem. I just get really excited seeing what all I can build. And then suddenly... I've got other people contributing content to the chatbot that are spitting out those auto-generated image memes all the time. And if you get one regular expression wrong, suddenly the bot's crapping out a dozen different memes every five minutes. And if it's a room with 50 people that are trying to have a single-threaded conversation like classic IRC, then they're going to get tired of that in a hurry. So <laughs> that's uh, actually the Elvis chatbot from that IRC channel is no longer active. I never quite figured out how to thread the needle in terms of maintaining that free-flowing collaborative spirit, but also not causing friction with the admins of the channel. And yeah, our soundboards at the office that automatically trigger off the stuff, you got to be really careful with that. People would occasionally hear a noise that's three times too loud, or maybe there's an important meeting happening. You had to have a lot of uh, sensitivity and restraint about that. The only real chatbots I'm running right now are more of the chat op style stuff like Chuck was talking about. I think early this year, I spun up a leaderboard at work and we're doing things like create the release candidate that we're going to deploy later. And then now that we're ready for it, create a PR to do this or that. Just really simple stuff. Or this release is staged and ready to go. So tell the chatbot, hey, go pull release ABC off the shelf and and release it. And that sort of thing is a lot easier for people to uh, get behind and enjoy and not get uh, tired of. Yeah, and I see like using it for like chat ops, like things like that, like would be really cool. And that's probably where I would want to use it. Like maybe hitting your air monitoring service and the chat bot will put it into a Slack channel. Or I know some of them do that out of the box, but for the ones who don't, or maybe creating or doing a deploy or writing release notes or anything like that. I think 
that would all be really fun to do. I definitely would. I would be more than tempted to play with more of the fun stuff for sure. But I don't know if I would release that to everyone just because I can definitely see where it could get a little out of hand pretty quickly if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. One thing that I found particularly helpful with the chat up style of making explicitly useful skills is to pursue sort of a microservices approach. If like if Chuck was talking about connecting to what you say as a CRM, some sort of API that you were reaching out to. Yeah, I, I use HubSpot for my CRM. Okay, so what I would suggest you do is write a little module that just does that one thing you want to do with HubSpot mm-hmm. and then maybe publish that as its own standalone API, whether it's like a Lambda on AWS or a Heroku app or something. Right. And then within your chatbot, it's basically just a router that catches, it, it really feels exactly like writing Sinatra apps to me. You write down the route, when I hear this, then I do that. And then the naive approach would be to paste all two dozen lines of whatever it takes to make HubSpot, HubSpot happen right in your chatbot. But the bigger it gets and the, the more you try to keep it tested and reliable, I wind up extracting those things. Like the HubSpot implementation goes elsewhere and the chatbot just says, when I hear this, then I fire up my HubSpot module and pass it these two parameters and then I send the results to the chat room. Yeah, that sounds really great. And uh, yeah, I've been playing with Azure Functions and uh, they, they don't have Ruby support yet. So I've been writing more JavaScript there. But yeah, you know, you could do something like that for sure and then just lock mm-hmm. it down so that it has to authenticate in some way, you know, so you put some secret key in it that it has to send along or it won't respond. And then yeah, you just mm-hmm. hook it up and off it goes and then you can set up as many of those as you need to and you only pay for the usage. So that that's a nice bargain between the two, I think. Yeah, we have something like that. I mentioned the release candidates and deploys at the WorkBot. A lot of the actual heavy lifting is done by a separate bot that we built that's written in Python and runs on AWS Lambda. It actually creates the release candidate pull requests and it does a few other jobs. And in that case, yeah, our leader bot just reaches out to that Lambda web service and it includes a specific authentication key HTTP header when it reaches out to our Lambda service. And if it doesn't have that header, then the Lambda service will just reject it. And I have to remind myself sometimes not to just do it all in one place because it's exciting and you can get the thing working and then move on. But I do find myself going back and extracting and cleaning up to keep it clean. Do you cover in your book how to do this on AWS? The book explicitly explains how to spin up a leader bot with Heroku as the first step. And if you've used Heroku, it's just... There's really not much to it. If it works locally, you just set up a few config files and then push it to Heroku and it's good. There's another step that in another chapter that wraps it up in a Docker container and deploys that Docker container in a Docker daemon you're running on a DigitalOcean box. But DigitalOcean in that sense is just meant to be a, a proxy for any generic Linux cloud service. So I didn't put in the book explicit instructions on what the best recommended way to publish one of these things on AWS might be. But I can tell you that I have one running on AWS in a container inside of the uh, AWS managed Kubernetes service, EKS, which is what, Elastic Kubernetes service. If you use something like that at work, then I would strongly recommend you package up your chatbot that way because it's really just one process that needs a companion Redis database. And beyond that, all you'd have to do is connect the... uh, HTTP endpoints if you wanted to, but those don't really do much out of the box. So it's not really 
top priority. I can literally hear my weekend slowly dwindle away. <laughs> nice. I might be able to find some of the Kubernetes configs if you're interested. Yeah, I'm flying out to uh, Portland tonight for Chain React, which is a React Native conference to try and promote React Native Radio. And then I'm going to be at OzCon next week and I'm just going, yeah, I don't have time to play with this, which is probably a good thing because then I won't get around to it until I really need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, this yep. just seems like a ton of fun. It is for sure. And the, the magic thing about this is it almost becomes a little tiny in-house platform. Just getting it running at all is one step and then having it hosted and deployable, like I mentioned with that Elvis bot. Like once you get that going, it can kind of take on a life of its own. Once you know that you can make the two plus two equals four skill, then you know you're ready to go whenever you need to do some real programming to do your HubSpot integration or whatever DevOps you want to do or chat ops you want to do at work. Then it's just a matter of sitting down and writing the code and seeing if it works. And one thing I try to emphasize a lot in the book, every chapter is sort of a standalone experience. They do sort of build to progressively more complicated and wacky things as you get to the end of the book. But each one of the chapters walks you through creating a new Lita skill, starting from the, the generator, which is like Lita handler skill name. So it's a Lita handler Chuck's HubSpot skill, and it would create the gem for you. And right away, that gem exists as a standalone Ruby module. It's got an empty RSpec suite. It's got the stubbed out skill already there. So you can run it as soon as you finish the generator. And then you open it up and uh, start typing in a little bit of implementation code, like a one-liner for what route you're trying to catch. This is just like Rails routing. When I hear this, when I see this in the URL, then go there, right? Well, here it's when I see this in the line of text that I just captured, go there. And it's, it's a nice, simple, iterative workflow once you get into it. You don't necessarily have to build 100 things at once. It's pretty fun. So what kind of convinced you to write a book about this first, just maybe writing some tutorials online? Well, I always wanted to write a book for as long as I can remember. When I was a kid, it was more like, hey, I want to write a fantasy novel like the Lord of the Rings or whatever stuff that I'm enjoying at the time, right? As I got older and became a professional programmer, I found myself attending and starting meetups, uh, giving talks at the meetups, and then branching out to developer conferences around the, the Memphis area. And I enjoyed giving the talks. I enjoyed building stuff to show at the conferences. And I'd been into blogging for a long time too. So I had this interest in making cool technical stuff and writing it up and showing it to people. But I tend to have a, sometimes I have a dry style if I'm not super excited about what I'm showing off. Like if I'm showing you the, the stupid jokes, then I'll get into it and probably the audience will enjoy it. But if I'm just giving you a review of latest uh, tech buzzword that I read about and did a demo of, then uh, it can be pretty dry. And that's actually how I got into wanting to write this book. A couple of years ago, I was given a presentation at Pi Tennessee. It's a Python conference in Nashville. And I think the subject of my talk was either doing some, I think it was using Let's Encrypt with Go, not with Go, Let's Encrypt in Python, just because a few years ago when Let's Encrypt hit the market, it was a big deal because developers didn't have so much hands-on experience with SSL because you got to pay $100 to try it. So people aren't just doing that for fun, right? Unless you're doing the, what do they call the snake oil certs. So I gave this talk and it was a mostly empty room, but you know, if there were a few people there, they appreciated it. 
And then the next day, the conference had a, a lightning talk session at lunch, and I signed up on a lark in the morning. Let me show you my stupid chatbot tricks. And so I spent an hour or so going through that Elvis chatbot's greatest hits, making it tell all the jokes and show all the image macro memes and a couple of somewhat useful things. And I worked that up into a presentation along with live demo and screenshots. And I got to give that talk to the assembled conference in the main room where the keynote speakers had been. And uh, just going through all the stuff that I was really into, it was definitely explicitly not for work. Got the whole room engaged. There were 100 plus people there. They were laughing, having a good time. And that was a really meaningful experience to me because I'd given, I don't know, maybe five to 10 conference talks before that and hadn't ever really gotten that type of engagement. Like I tended to give really technical, narrowly focused talks and maybe two or three people would be into it. Nobody else would know or care what it was. So that just really inspired me to say, hey, I should do more of this. I always wanted to take this whole chatbot scene from our local Memphis group to a wider area. And so I started writing up a book proposal within the week. That's awesome. And I see that it's uh, on PragProg and you know, I've, I've known Andy for a long time. I've also known Dave for a long time, but he's not as involved anymore. And uh, yeah, they do a great job over there and they take good care of their authors. So I, I was pretty happy to see you over there. I'm like, yep, he's, he's doing pretty good. <laughs> Cause, yeah, cause... I, was, I was overjoyed when Pride probably took me up on it. Uh, they've been my favorite technical book publisher for as long as I can remember. Their style, it's sort of similar to what I'm into. Like you find people who are clearly doing this for fun because it means something to them. They're in, they enjoy it. They're into it and they'll go really deep into it. And it's got sort of a, often the books will be sort of idiosyncratic. Like you can feel the author's personality coming through. And I knew if I wrote a book, it'd have to be that way. I'd never finish it. Some of the other larger publishers I talked to and they were more hoping like, yeah, we like chatbots, but we want you to do a book on Facebook messenger bots with no JS because we know there's a bigger market there. And I said, well, I bet that would sell, but I'm not going to be able to write it in a way that you'll appreciate. So we just sort of parted ways there. But right. iPod took me up on it pretty much immediately and I was overjoyed and it really worked out well. Nice. So what's the best way for people to buy the book then? Just go to PragProg or what is it? PragmaticBookshelf.com, I think it is, or PragProg.com. I can't remember. Yeah. So if you go to the PragProg website, you can look up the book. It's called Build Chatbot Interactions. Let me dig out the official publisher URL. Yeah, it's pragprog.com. And then uh, I just search for chatbot or build chatbot interactions. If that doesn't appeal, you could go to my personal website, dpushit.net slash book. I made a landing page for the book and that helps. Definitely, if you do plan on buying it, request that you uh, go through the publisher's site because more of the money goes to the people who worked on the book, the publisher and the editor and the author. Yeah, It is available on Amazon and that's cool too. But if you're looking to support this whole scene and go to the publisher first for sure. Nice. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Primarily, you'll find me on Twitter at dpritchett. You can probably also see another mad scientist dumb idea pop up on GitHub every week or two if you follow me at GitHub at dpritchett. And then, like I said, I have a blog that I update maybe a couple of times a year at dpritchett.net. I'm pretty consistently dpritchett everywhere I can be. Awesome. Hey folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano 
pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean. It really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice, it's straightforward, it has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues, that's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Unless, Andrew, you have something else you want to bring up. All right. Well, then why don't you give us some picks, Andrew? Sure. So I found this tool the other day for, it's called Lazy Docker. And it's basically a simple terminal UI to kind of manage and see your Docker containers. And I find it so helpful. You can click through all of your running containers and you can see the logs for them. You can see the config, you can see stats, um, you can see lots of more information about your images and volumes. And yeah, so that's my pick, Lazy Docker. It's been huge help to me personally recently. Right on. Nice. I'm going to throw in a few picks. I mentioned Azure Functions before, and this is something I've been playing with a little bit lately. What I've been doing, and I don't know if I've complained about it on this show, I've complained about it on the Entreprogrammers podcast. So if you go to entreprogrammers.com, you can kind of hear me talk about the business of DevChat along with the guys from Simple Programmer and Manny from 2000 Books. But anyway, the issue is, is that it's kind of a black box the way that they count downloads, uh, which is more or less our proxy for subscribers to the podcast, just because we don't have great numbers. So anyway, uh, the, the issue that I have is that I like to be able to give accurate numbers to my sponsors. And the company that I've been using, Blueberry, keeps changing their algorithm and not explaining to me why the numbers vary so wildly. And when I say very wildly, I mean, if it was like up one week and down the next and up the next and down the next, you know, it might just be, okay, well, you know, some of these are more popular than another. But when it drops off in half and then steadily builds back up and then drops off in half again six months later, to me, that's them changing their algorithm and not explaining to me why. And when I reach out to them, that's all I get is we changed our algorithm. And so I want to be able to just tell people, hey, look, this is how we measure. You know, this is, this is how we say, hey, this is the same device reaching out and downloading it, you know, hitting multiple times because some of them do that. They'll reach out and they'll say, okay, I want, I want the Ruby Rogues episode and I'm going to download it faster by requesting it at, at byte zero, byte, you know, 25,000, byte 50,000, byte 100,000, you know. And so then they kind of downloaded four pieces all at once. And yeah, you don't want to count those as a single download. You want, or you want to count all of those together as a single download, not each of them. So, you know, I want to be able to explain to people how I'm deduplicating the, the records and things like that. And I can't. And when I have drastic swings in the numbers the way that, that I've been talking about, it just makes it really hard for me to trust the numbers because I feel like they're, they're gaming the system a little bit. And they've been, this is going to get me into the politics of podcasts. They've adopted a, a system of counting put together by the National Association of Broadcasters, which traditionally represented radio. And I don't necessarily completely trust their motives either. The other thing is, is that 
they keep saying that they're standardizing on behalf of the people who advertise. Well, if you want to make the people who advertise happy, you make those numbers go as low as possible because then they can negotiate a lower rate on the sponsorship, right? And so, you know, some of the things they've said and some of the rhetoric they've used gets me less and less excited about the way that they do things. And so um, I've been working on this software as a service, PodWrench. We're probably actually going to have it available for beta here within the next month. And I decided to just add download tracking as part of the deal. So I've been using Azure Functions. And what's funny is, is that, you know, I've been paying them like, I think it's like $5 a month for each show. So I've been paying them like, you know, $60, $70 a month to track all of the show's downloads. And so I got in on Azure Functions. And after two hours, I basically had something that would store all the information I needed. (laughs) And so I was a little bit frustrated because I'm like, you know what, this this would have been totally worth my time to do a long time ago and <laughs> not even bother with these guys, right? So the, the Azure functions, two things, I have a, uh, an HTTP trigger and that's where all the downloads hit. They hit that and then they'll get redirected out to where the actual files are hosted. And then the other thing that you can do is you can set up a trigger on Cosmos DB, which is their SQL uh, server. It's kind of like um, DynamoDB on AWS. And the reason I'm using Azure is just because I know a lot of people over there and I figure I can get help if I need it. AWS is... I've, I've been confused by some of the stuff that they do and their, their UI is not intuitive. Azure's is more intuitive, but not intuitive either, really. But anyway, so I, I set that up. You can set up a trigger also on when you insert a row into Cosmos DB. So I'm just going to set up another microservice that gets triggered by that and then it'll mark stuff as a duplicate if it's a duplicate. So... That's kind of what I'm looking at for that kind of a thing. And yeah, it's going to be really simple. I mean, I figure if you're using the same user agent from the same IP address within 24 hours, it's probably a duplicate if you're to the same media URL. So, so yeah, so that's, that's more or less how I'm deduplicating it. But yeah, so I'm going to pick Azure Functions. If you're going to do Azure Functions, by far the easiest way I've found to do it is that you go and you get the Visual Studio Code extension. That's been really, really nice. I'll also warn you, though, the documentation really isn't great. I've kind of had to stumble my way through some of this stuff. And I'm wishing now that I had documented it a little bit better, what I was doing, because I'd love to just put it up and say, hey, if you're doing Azure Functions, you know, here, here, here are all the roadblocks I ran into and here's how to get around them. So I may just go back and, and figure some of the, that stuff out. But yeah, that's what I've been playing with lately and I'm kind of excited about it. I'm also going to be at OzCon, I think... I'm not sure if this episode comes out next Tuesday during OzCon or the week after. But yeah, if you're in Portland, I'd love to meet up. If if that works out, just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. And if it's after OzCon, then I'm sorry. I missed you. So anyway, Daniel, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. First thing I've been really excited about the last few weeks is a tool called Askinema. It's a portmanteau of ASCII and Cinema. I'm finding in my role as an infrastructure engineer that... I often need to do demos for people to prove that something that doesn't have a web UI actually works is out there. So lately I've been writing up little demos of shell scripts and then using this Askinema tool, you install Askinema as an NPM package, I think, and it allows you to record a shell session and then it uploads it to the web and people can play it back as basically a little movie. So I'll do a 10, 20 second demo of something I want to show off and record it with Askinema and upload it then you just send somebody a link and they can see the faithful representation of the character-by-character terminal session complete with colors. And that's been really handy for me at work. 
And actually, my most recent Eskinema cool hack I showed off at work was uh, another package called DocTalk. I've been working with uh, a lot of Markdown-based documentation at work lately, and I'm pretty comfortable with the Markdown format, and I have my headers arranged in a, a sane way, like don't go right from an H1 to an H4, that sort of thing. But I find myself when I'm writing a long document that it, wishing I had an auto-generated table of contents in the same way you could get from, say, Word or Google Doc. Mm-hmm. And that's where this .talk tool comes in. You just download it from NPM and then you run .talk and you point it at your Markdown file name and it reads all of your headers, generates a Markdown table of contents and then inserts it at the top of your file. I'm nice. finding that really handy for updating my, my docs at work on a regular basis. One more I just thought of sort of as a response to your interest in Azure Functions. This sort of thing can be a real uh, controversial pick, but uh, I really like the serverless framework at serverless.com. Yeah, they I, tried I, to. Uh, we've done shows on, on the serverless framework, so uh, on JavaScript Jabber, so we'll put links to those. But yeah, keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, that's cool. One thing I find, you mentioned that the... The Azure Functions platform can be confusing at first. The documentation is kind of hit or miss. It can be really hard for an outsider who's not used this platform, whether it's AWS Lambda or Azure Functions or one of the others, to understand all the the special terminology and the execution model it takes to make it work. Like, for instance, to use the Lambda on AWS as primarily a web programmer, when I came to Lambda, I wanted to just have something basically like a Sinatra app that would just be up and running and infinitely scalable and not cost a lot, right? But that is not really the core of what Lambda is designed for. Lambda can be to do a lot more, more stuff. So if you take a framework like serverless, you can sort of set up, hey, I want to make a little web app that runs on Lambda. And you pull a few configs off the shelf with some YAML files, and it'll make that happen for you. If you become more experienced with a particular platform, like say Azure Functions, you'll probably eventually pair some of that back and start using more of the native stuff and less of the third-party tooling to get started. But I really found that sort of thing nice if you're trying to get some simple idea out to a function as a service platform on day one without having to learn the entire platform first. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I, I love all this stuff. <laughs> so looking forward to it. And I need to check out Lazy Docker too. That sounds like it'll make my life better. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. We're going to put a link to the book in the show notes. So if you've been listening and you're you're looking for that, uh, definitely check it out. But yeah, you can just go to Prague and I just did a search for chatbot and found it. So uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of other stuff out there. Um, I find that a lot of this stuff is self-explanatory. The book just kind of short shortcuts some of the parts that are less well understood. So it's probably worth the investment as a reference, even if you're not going to read it cover to cover if you're going to do this kind of work. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Daniel. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been great. All right, well, we will uh, wrap up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.